Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Good evening again to you guys. I'm so glad that you're here. It's good to see your faces. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to 1 Samuel chapter 18 for our Bible study tonight. If you uh, need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers. I am excited to hear what God has to say tonight. I think he's going to speak to many of us, so um, why don't we just pray and then we'll get into our study tonight. And uh, if you guys could just hit go on that. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for, for being here with us again. And we just settle our hearts now and ask, Father, that you would speak to us. We thank you, Lord, that you're faithful to week by week, even day by day and moment by moment. And so we open our hearts to you, Lord, we lift up our hands to heaven. And you said, Lord, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And so, Lord, we ask for your feeding, your word, God, in our souls, in our hearts tonight, and that it would get into our lives and affect our, our, our walk, where we go, our direction. So help us, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you've given us this window to look into truth and into eternity. So God, would you open it to us now? We ask for your Spirit's help, and it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. So I remember uh, as a young younger man, the first time I ever set foot in a Protestant church, and it was uh, about five years before I was actually born again. So I was raised uh, as a Catholic, and I was very steeped in the tradition of it. I was familiar with it. I was never a friend of it, but it was what I was brought up in. And I remember going into a Protestant church on the first time, and I remember the pastor opened up the service by asking this small Methodist congregation if there were any uh, prayer requests or praise reports? That was the question that he put forward. And so I was taking this all in, and, uh, and I remember a, a young couple standing up and giving a praise report that they had recently gotten engaged. And so they shared the news of their engagement, and the congregation clapped as we praised with them in their report. I remember another uh, single woman standing and asking for prayer for a wayward son and husband. She had a prayer request. And so there was the prayer request and the praise report. And I uh, wasn't familiar with that in my background, but when I did come to Christ later on and began attending churches, Bible studies, meeting with groups of Christians, I learned that the prayer request and praise report part of most meetings is normal. You know, when you go to a home group, if you get together with other Christians, uh, anybody got any prayer requests, any praise reports? And that is, is this thing that we do. And what I came to learn and discover, as you probably also have, is that the entire Christian life is just a series of prayer requests and praise reports. We just go through these cycles where we pray for things and then we praise for things that God has answered in the things that we have prayed for. What I have also come to discover in my years as being a Christian is that today's praise report is not only the answer to yesterday's prayer request, but that it also is setting the stage for tomorrow's prayer request. See, we pray for a job, and then we pray about a job. We pray for a spouse, and then we pray about our spouse. 
We pray for kids, then we praise when they come, and then we pray about our kids. And so it is with any position that we might hold, anything that we might ask God for, we praise him when he gives it, but then we find that that very thing sets the stage for our next prayer request and what it is that we need to ask for. And what we begin to understand, if we're paying attention, is that all of life, in all of our prayer, in all of our praise, is doing something to prepare us for the future, not only in terms of what we're living in and experiencing on earth, but more so for what God is doing in preparing us for eternity. There's something happening that God is building us up, he's growing us, and he's moving us forward towards something. Now, we talk in in Christian circles, in church, in Bible studies, we talk a lot about purpose. That's a big word in the Bible. It comes up over and over again uh, in in one degree or another, if not by its word, uh, in its concept. And that's an important thing because that's one of the things that God has set upon our hearts when we come into this world is to search and seek out our purpose. You know, I think it was Augustine, that quote that he says that our souls are listless, wandering, searching for rest until we find our rest in thee. That's communicating to us this cry out for purpose. We want to know why we exist. And one of the things that we come to discover as soon as we give our lives to Christ is we know our purpose, right? Ephesians chapter 1, let me read to you just something that Paul says Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, he prays for the church. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Listen, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints. And that's something that when we come to Christ, there's an immediate sense of joy and peace that floods our soul because we know why we exist. There's an eternal purpose that we become aware of. And so there's a praise in that, but that's not the end of purpose because Paul would go on to say to the same group of people, just a few paragraphs later, he would say this. He would say that we are his workmanship, meaning that we are God's product that he is doing something in us. He's working something in us, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Meaning that the purpose that we discover when we first come to Christ is not the end of purpose. That's just the beginning. We know why we exist and where we're headed, but God has a plan. He has something that he has created us for, something that he has placed inside of us that he desires to uncover and reveal that we might live out what he has placed in, that we might give glory to him and enjoy our lives. And so purpose is something that is continual. It keeps on happening. First Peter, Peter writes, and he, he wrote a letter to encourage Christians in their trials. And he says this, it's first Peter chapter two, verse five. He says that you also as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. In other words, you are a part of something that God is building. You are a living stone 
in, as it were, a temple that is eternal. Now, a part of being a living stone is that we are being shaped by God to fit a very specific and particular place. Now, that means that there is a process, sometimes painful, certainly unpleasant, of God shaping us, chipping things away, cutting off rough edges in order that we might be prepared and fit for the purpose that he has. Thus, we have this cycle of prayer requests and praise reports. God is doing something in us. He's moving us somewhere. He's doing something. Now, in this cycle of prayer requests, praise reports, promotion, problems, all of what God's doing, there's something that's happening inside of us, okay? There's a stability that God is working in us. There is an understanding that God is imparting to us to help us understand how life works, how the kingdom works, how we work, how things work. He's giving us understanding. He's also giving us competence. He is equipping us with what we need in order to do what it is that he's called us to do. We're becoming competent. He's working in us character. We are also growing and being shaped to become the kind of people that reflect who God wants us to be. We are also receiving education. He's teaching us things through the experiences that we're going through, through the struggles and trials. We are also receiving an endowment. That is that God imparts of himself, from himself, spiritual gifts, graces that we are specifically given that only we have in the way that we have them to do what it is that we've been called to do. And in all of it, we are being developed, okay? Which sounds like a sermon, doesn't it? But God, this is what God is doing in all of the things that we're going through. Now, as we grow, as we move, God brings promotion. He raises us up like a tree grows, we grow, and there are stages and promotions that we have. Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7, it says this. It says, for promotion cometh neither from the east nor the west nor from the uh, south. Missed one? Anyways, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he sets up another. Okay, God is the one that raises us up and he promotes us. And with promotion, as we grow, with that comes opportunity, resources, more gifts, advantages, and privileges. Just like it is with a career or a job or a stage of life. As you are promoted, there are perks that come with that promotion. But there are also, when we're promoted, struggles and stretchings, and obstacles, and conflicts. There are problems that come with promotion. There are also expectations. Jesus would say it like this. It's Luke chapter 12 and verse 48. This one won't go on the screen, but he said this. You know it well. He says, for unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. As you are promoted and you are given more, more is expected from you. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> we all understand what that feels like. That's why the prophet Zechariah encourages us. Chapter four, he says, don't despise the days of small things. 
you know, when it seems like nothing's happening, it seems like life is simple. Listen, find the joy in the simplicity of small things. Because when big things come, so do big expectations and sometimes even big problems. Promotion is reason for a praise report, but it also comes with some prayer requests. Now, you say, what does that have to do with David? Everything, and here's why. Because we pick up with David in chapter 18, and David has some incredible praise reports at the beginning of this chapter. I mean, he has received purpose and promise in every level. Samuel came and dumped oil on his head. There's been a calling that's been imparted to him. He's been given opportunity. He scored a low-level job in the palace, and he is now acquainted with the power people in Israel in his day. We've seen victory. Goliath fell in the last chapter, and God gave David an amazing amount of notoriety and uh, warrior status. I mean, he just is growing and growing, and all of that has created new opportunities, advancement, and also resources. David has a lot to praise God for. But with praise reports come what? Prayer, next, the next prayer requests. <laughs> you know, it's going to happen. So let's look at chapter 9, 18 and let's see David's advantages. Let's see what David has going for him here at the start of all of this. It says this. It says that it came to pass that when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul. This is immediately after the fall of Goliath. That the soul of Jonathan, that's Saul's son, the son of the king, the prince, was knit, knit together with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him, took David that day, and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And you recall maybe from uh, a chapter, two chapters ago, it says that nobody had weapons in Israel. The Philistines kind of controlled the metal industry. And so they had weapons, the king had weapons, but the people did it. But now Jonathan gives to David the weapons, the precious weapons that he himself has. It says in verse five that David went out whithersoever Saul sent him, and he behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. He has an amazing position. He's the secretary of defense over the entire military arm of Israel, the youngest and first. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So he has the favor of the citizens, also of the soldiers, and it came to pass as they came that when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets and with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played. So they're singing in round. And they said, Saul has slain his thousands. And then the other group would answer back and David his tens of thousands. So David even has the favor of the cheerleaders. He has everyone. He's got the coaches. He's got the players. He's got the administration. He's got the cheerleaders. Everything in David's life at this time is moving up and to the right. It's an amazing time for David. 
Now, before we just move on from David's advantages, I want to point out something about Jonathan. Because Jonathan is an amazing character in the Bible. He is atypical from what you would expect. Because typically, you know, a son is a reflection of his father. And we see that Jonathan is of a completely different makeup, nature, and character than his father Saul. Saul is possessive, he's territorial, he's jealous, he's narcissistic. But Jonathan is different. Jonathan is full of faith. We saw him take his armor bearer and go and attack a garrison of the Philistines all by himself. He's a man of courage. He's also a man of, of, of humility and that he's willing to take the son of a stranger, not a foreigner, but a stranger by family, David, and, and take a liking to him even to the point where he allows his heart to be open to a friendship that goes to the level of covenantal bond where he gives to him his very robe, his sword, his spear, his shield, everything that he is. He's a completely different man than his father. And I want to point that out to you just to say this. That sometimes we think that we are destined to become like our parents. That, that we're going to do what they did, whether it be our father or our mother. And here's what I want to tell you, is that it's true. Is that you are going to become like your father or like your mother, who it is that raised you. But you get determined to determine who your father, who your mother is, okay? And you say, well, what do you mean by that? See, if Jonathan was looking at Saul as the one he was taking his cues from, then no doubt he would become like his father. What we see in Jonathan is that he took the words of Jesus quite literally when Jesus said, call no man on earth your father, for one is your father, and that is your father that's in heaven. And there is one way that I know that you and I don't have to become like those who raised us. And that is that we get our eyes and our attention and our promptings off of what comes to us by nature. And we fix our eyes upon the Father who has adopted us from heaven. And what will happen is that we will become more like him and not a reflection of that which is earthly. And that's what we see in Jonathan. That's why he's so very different. What an amazing character. He's also a man of incredible loyalty. Is that even though he's nothing like his father, he knows that he's called to be the son of his father. And so therefore, even though he knows that Saul's crazy, he remains loyal to his father for the sake of honoring God. He's just an amazing character in scripture, probably one of the most honorable in terms of the kind of man that he actually was. Uh, commendable for sure. But as far as David, back to David, things are moving fully up and to the right for David. But now we get into verse eight. Don't you wish sometimes you could stop life at the end of verse seven? You know, roll credits, everything happy right off into the sunset. But no, God's not done. Praise reports become good. You guys are starting to catch on by the end. You're going to be shouting it. I know it. I know it's been two weeks, but you're going you're gonna, to, I know it. Watch this. Here comes it says that Saul was very wroth. It means wrathful, rageful, angry. And the saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. See, for Saul... To be honored by the people was everything. 
That was what it was all about. That's what it was all for. That's what the crown represented as far as he was concerned, is that he was chief, that he was captain, that he was the hero, that there was none but him. He was the end-all, be-all in Israel. And thus now he hears the people, especially the women, praising David, ascribing to him ten thousands, and it ignites in him a deep jealousy and a deep envy because David has what Saul wants, even though Saul has what he thinks David wants. David already has it. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. Is that whenever we look at people as the ones whom we want to gain approval from, that we are setting our feet into a snare. It's something that's going to trip us up and slow us down. Jesus would say in John chapter 5, verse 44, it's not on the thing, but Jesus would say this. He would say, how can you believe in God, you who seek the honor that comes from men and not the honor that comes from God only? See, when we are looking at people as the source of our acceptance or our, uh, a meter or gauge as to how well we're doing, then we're falling short. We're in a snare. It's in a wrong place. And that's Saul's error here, okay? Now, this is of no fault to David. He did not ask for this conflict with Saul. He didn't write the song. It's not recorded in the Psalms that, that he said, hey, when, why don't we do this? When we come back, the women will say this, and I just killed Goliath, so you guys say 10,000. This is not David's fault. He didn't orchestrate this issue and this trial, okay? But what's happened is that he has gotten on the wrong side of the one person who has the power to make his life miserable. Everyone else loves David. But the one with the power is now upset with him, and that's going to cause all types of problems. There's a proverb that struck me long, long ago, and I'll never forget it. It's Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4, and it says this. It says that wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? In other words, if someone gets angry with you, if someone, if someone ha has like a, a fit of rage towards you, then yeah, that's bad. It's not good. But if you have someone in your life that is envious of you, then you are in a dangerous place because envy is a bitter, deep poison. And it causes much, much trouble. Be careful. Don't ever do things just for the sake of trying to make people jealous of you. Because you're just asking for trouble. Let me quote, let me quote the great prophet Jamie Hargraves for a minute. He's in the back in the sound booth. That's Pastor Bobby's brother. He says this. He says, if you've got it better than everyone else, what should you do? Keep it to yourself. Someone else has listened to that. Keep it to yourself, you know. And, and that is the thing. Don't make people jealous of you. It is just completely unwise to do it. Well, uh, David now is on the wrong side of Saul, and I want you to see what happens. Look at verse 10. It says that it came to pass in the morning that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house and David played with his hand as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. 
and David avoided out of his presence twice. Now, this is huge, but I want you to pay attention and, 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 and think about what's going on here. The Bible says that the day after Saul hears this song and allows this envy to grip his heart, it says that the evil spirit from God came upon him and moved him against David. You know what that means? It means that God was orchestrating and authoring this trial that has now come up in David's life. God is the one that is stirring up the hand of Saul against David in this season of his life. Now, this whole idea of this evil spirit from God, does that make anybody in here fearful? <laughs> what, an evil spirit from God? <laughs> like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't understand. I thought the evil spirits were over here and God was over here and there's this battle, but God, you know, and this is saying that God actually moved in some way or at least allowed in some way this evil spirit to come upon Saul for the sake of persecuting David. This is insane. What's going on here? This is the second time that we've seen this in the life of Saul in his, in his exchange with David. And you realize that both times, both times that God allowed this evil spirit to influence Saul, it had to do directly with David. The first time it happened, it got David a job. That's how David got brought in because they needed an, a musician and David was chosen to do it. The first time it got him a job, the second time it almost gets him a jab. Because Saul now is going to throw the spear at David twice in order to do it. But what does this mean, this evil spirit from the, God, from the Lord? Here's what it means. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4 says this. It says that God has created all things, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Meaning that God is the one that orchestrates all things in both the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Paul would say it this way to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 1.21. It says that he, God, is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Meaning that God sits seated sovereign over all dominions, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And God will leverage the power of darkness to fulfill his purposes for good. We read of Job, and we see in the life of Job that God leveraged Satan's evil to build and to bless Job, his servant. We see that God used the evil of the Babylonians in order to purify and purge his people Israel to free them from idolatry. We see that God used the environment and platform of the Roman Empire to bring his son into the world and set the stage for the church to be born and he caused the church to thrive amidst the corruption and perversion of the early Roman Empire. That's what God does. God used the prison cell as an office and desk for the Apostle Paul to write some of the letters that we have in the New Testament. And so God will use what Satan has determined for evil in order to work good in the lives of his people and to serve his purposes. Listen to me. God is the driving force behind this conflict in David's life. Now, Saul is the one with the issue. He is insane. He has mental illness. You can 
label it however you want to. But Saul is the one with the issue, but David is the object of its intent. And this is where it gets complicated. Because everyone in the room is looking at Saul and thinking that he is the problem. But listen, Saul is not the problem. Everyone is praying for Saul to be healed. Oh God, take away this evil spirit. Take away this influence. Take away this craziness from Saul. And if God, if you take away the problem of Saul's insanity, then the problem will go away. But the real issue is that Saul's insanity is not the problem. The problem is an underdeveloped David. That's the problem, is that God has a goal to turn a rough cut David into the living stone of the greatest king that Israel has ever had. And Saul is going to be the instrument to do it. And so if the evil spirit departs from Saul, then the problem remains because David is unchanged. And God wants to use a crazy Saul to change the great king that is not yet. Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody mentally ill in your life? Has God put anybody around you that is clinically insane? You know, and that you think that that's the problem and that they need to be healed? Listen, sometimes the way that God sees a situation is completely different than the way man sees a situation. Man sees an unstable king, but God sees an unprepared David. And oftentimes what we see as an obstacle, God is using to create an opportunity. And that's exactly what's going on with Saul, okay? God put a power over David's life in the person of Saul, and God put a pressure on David's life that would make life less comfortable for him in the short term, but more compatible for his growth in the long term. David needs this. Listen, here's the lesson. Here's the point is that when conflict or discomfort or insane people come into your life, don't pray them away. Embrace them as a gift because you don't know what God is doing. And if God has allowed something crazy to come into your life, it's because God sees something that needs to be done. He's setting you up for where you are not yet. Now, listen, I know that sometimes the crazy that I'm talking about right now for you is something that's intolerable or unacceptable. And I'm not telling you here tonight that if you're being beaten or abused or the person in your life is, is literally ruining you, that you have to just stay in there and take it and say, thank you, God, for what's going on. That's not necessarily what it means to embrace it. Because what we're going to see in David here is that David avoided out of Saul's presence and he actually had to leave from being in Saul's direct vicinity because it was an endangerment to his health and his, his well-being. Okay, so to embrace a circumstance doesn't mean you are someone else's punching bag or spitting bucket, okay? It just means that you're embracing it and receiving it from God and you're surrendering the circumstances to him, allowing him to do what he wants to do in your life through the situation that he has allowed. Well, here we enter a new theme that will carry with us for several chapters, and that is this, is that Saul will try to hold on to what he cannot keep and David will embrace what he cannot avoid. Saul will continue to try to hold on to this crown that is no longer his. 
And David will embrace what God is allowing in his life, and that will be his success in the long term. Saul will seek to remove and eliminate David, and if not by death, then he will try to crush his spirit. And what happens next is that Saul will, in five ways, Saul will seek to crush David, kill his spirit. If he can't kill him physically, he'll try to take everything out of him to keep him from ever growing to the place where he will thrive and he will prosper. How does Saul try to crush David? If you're taking notes, five quick things. Number one, he tries by throwing points. That's the javelin that we read about in verse 11. Two times he throws a javelin. Does anybody have someone in their life that they just are always trying to stick you with their point? You know, they, 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 they're just going to throw things at you. It could be an insult. It could be, but they're just going to jab you, just constantly try. Listen, David, David thrives in this because he knows how to duck. <laughs> you know? And sometimes that's all you can do is just duck. Keep your eyes on God and don't let it affect you. Shake it off. David ducked. He didn't let it stick. And you don't have to let it stick when someone's trying to throw something at you. Keep your eyes upon God. The second thing that Saul does to try to crush David is that he gives him a massive demotion. Remember the position that he had? He was the secretary of defense. He was the youngest and first to be the captain over the entire military of Israel. Well, watch what happens in verse 12, it says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. That's a massive demotion. When you go from the secretary of defense to even less than a one-star general, Okay, a one-star general in the United States military has charge over 20,000 men. David's the captain over 1,000. So he goes from way up here, and Saul just goes, you know what? I got a better position for you. I think that Goliath thing, I think it was kind of a fluke. And so I got a position that's probably more fitting to your level of maturity and competence at this season of your life. I want you to be, David's like, what is it? What is it? You're going to be the captain over 1,000. What? Yeah. That's what what you're going to, you're just going to be, imagine if it were you, what you would feel like. If you go from that level and you are immediately demoted by a jealous boss to that level, way, 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 way down. Here's a mop. Here's a broom. Have at it. Let's see how you do. Major demotion, okay? Moves him to a lower position. But watch what David does. It says that David went out and came in before the people. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. You say, well, what was the wisdom of David's behavior in this season of his life? Do you know what it was? He embraced the demotion, took the position, and he did it with the best of his ability to get out of it everything that God might have in it for him to gain and to grow through. And watch what happened. It says in verse 16 that all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Do you see that? Do you know what that represents? It represents a major promotion. Okay, Saul demoted him. God promoted him. 
Because what's happened now is that David being prepared to, to be the king is now with the people and he's winning the favor of the people that Saul, it's, it's even worse for Saul than what he was intending to do. The wisdom of David is that he took what came and he rolled with it and he did it to the best of his ability. And Saul was not able to crush his spirit by demoting him into this way. He didn't complain, he was content. The third thing that Paul, uh, Saul tries to do to crush David's spirit is in verse 17, and that is that he tries to put him in perk prison. Watch this. It says that Saul said to David, behold, my elder daughter, Mirab, her will I give you to wife. Only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, let not my hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. Okay, so he says to David, listen, I promised you, the person who killed Goliath that they would be the son-in-law to the king. And so now I'm going to give you this honorable place. You're going to marry my daughter. You're going to be the, the wife of the king. But inwardly, what Saul was actually thinking is he's thinking that I'm going to put David in such a way where he's endangered in his life and hopefully he will ultimately die, okay? Uh, what Saul's doing here is that classic thing. You ever heard it before? Is keep your, keep your friends close, keep your enemies even... That's right, exactly. It's like, if I can't beat him, I'll control him. If I can get him to marry my daughter and I can leverage him by marrying him into the family, then I can put him in a place where he's vulnerable and ultimately I can take him down. Listen, beware of perk prison. Beware of controlling people in your life that will give you certain advantages, but in return for that, you lose your freedom. Or they have leverage in your life to manipulate you to do what they want you to do. And you know that if you don't do what they want, then you'll lose the perks that you have. Beware of perk prison, manipulative people. Selling your soul is a real thing. And people do it all the time. The fourth thing that Saul does to try to crush David is in verse 18 and 19. It's honor theft. Watch this. It says that David said unto Saul, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? This is a great honor. But it came to pass at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, to wife. So here it comes. David's like, son-in-law to the king. Like, this is, this is outstanding. This is amazing. This is going to bring me back into Saul's favor. Like, this is a great thing. And then all of a sudden, David gets a thing and, and, and come to a wedding. And Mirab, she's marrying this nobody who's going to die in a few years. And someone else is going to raise his kids. Like, wait, what? I, I was promised this promotion. I was promised the corner office. I was promised to head this division. And now it's being given to someone else? But this was supposed to, I thought that, Saul thought, this is going to crush him. I'll give her to somebody else. Number five, in verse 20, is sabotage. It says that Michael, Macau, I don't know how to say it, never have. In the entire 20 years that I've been a Christian, I have never known the correct pronoun. I know that four of you are going to come up to me after the service and tell it to me, and it's probably got a in it somewhere. I don't know, but I'm going to call her. Michael, sorry, Michal, okay, Michal, okay, Michal, that's it forever now. Saul's daughter loved David, and they told Saul, 
And the thing pleased him. He knew this girl. We're going to meet this girl again. She's trouble. And Saul said, oh, I will give him her that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Now listen, that's the intent of Saul's heart in giving David this woman. Wherefore, Saul said to David, you shall this day be my son-in-law in one of the two. Who cares? Mirab, Michal, you can be my son-in-law, you'll have her. And so Saul commanded his servants, saying, Commune with David secretly and say, Behold, the king hath delight in thee. Now that is Saul's subtlety. We already know that's not Saul's intention. But what's coming out of his mouth is different than what's coming out of his heart. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe you've met some people before that what comes out of their mouth is different than what's going on in their heart. God is allowing this. David has some things to learn. The king has great delight in you. And all his servants love you. Now, therefore, be the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Seemeth it to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law, seeing that I'm a poor man and lightly esteemed? Mark that. This, it's some of what Saul's doing is actually working. Do you see that? David, hey, nobody likes me. What are you talking about? Like, I had a good moment. I had my moment. Goliath fell down. Everybody was singing my praises. But all of a sudden, I'm like mopping the floor and... I'm being kind of stomped on and everybody's taking everything from me. I'm lightly esteemed. What, are you, what is all this? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, On this manner spoke David. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desireth not any dowry. You don't have to pay any money. But a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Did you hear that? What is wrong with this guy? Right? Like, like does he, in his mind, he's like, I want a bucket and I want it to be full, and I want it to be poured out, and I, I want to count a hundred, what? Like, this, this is crazy. Like, who would even think this way? <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> he says, I want a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. Now, here's Saul's motive. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. He's no way that he's going to go up against a hundred men and going to win the battle that's in hand. And so when his servants told David these things, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law and the days were not expired as of yet. This is amazing that what, what's going on here. Do you see the sabotage that Saul is setting up for David? In his heart, he wants him dead. With his mouth, he's lifting him up. With his resources, he's enriching in blessing, but ultimately all of that in order to put David in a place where his life is in danger and ultimately he might die. This is the leader of the people of God that's doing this. Isn't that insane? I mean, it tells us earlier in the chapter that Saul was prophesying in the house. Do you know what that means? It means that he was teaching the Bible. He had a javelin in one hand. He had the Bible in the other hand. He was prophesying while David was worshiping. And the same man that was prophesying then threw a spear and tried to kill the man. This is crazy. But do you see what's in the heart of humanity? And God is allowing David to be the victim of all of this crazy. Why? Because God is doing something in David, preparing him with what he needs to be a successful king later on. 
This is the first year uh, my son and I, we have gotten into hunting. It's one of those things that, you know, I never thought much of, but thought would always be cool. And the opportunity kind of came up this year. And so we jumped on it. And, and, and so I have been learning a lot about hunting in these last couple of months. And I know it's meaningless and nothing, but one of the things I've learned has spoken to me amazingly, and it fits here. And that's this. I've learned that the stupidest animal in the forest is the button buck, the spike, the one-year-old or six-month-old buck. He is oblivious. He will run around during hunting season. He will ignore the crack of a shotgun. He will just run right into the face of a hungry hunter. Stupid. On the other hand, the smartest animal in the woods is the mature buck, the three-and-a-half-year-old buck. Okay, because if they have lived long enough to make it to see three and a half, then they have seen and sensed everything that's going on in their environment. And it is very difficult to get a mature buck to make a mistake, especially during hunting season. Because they understand sense. They understand what's going on around them. They know that you're in the woods if you're in the woods. That's why it's called a trophy buck, because you have outsmarted the buck's nose. I say that to say this, David is a button buck at this point in his life. That's not a bad thing, that's just normal. That's what happens when you're at this stage. And God sees that something has to be done in this young man to season his senses to the place where he will be wise. He is going to be a king dealing with the hearts of fallen people. He's going to have to deal with other kings of other nations that are more wicked than the people that are right in his court. He needs to understand people's manipulation. He needs to know the way that they operate, the politics involved in all this. And so God puts David right in the middle of the filth of it, allows him to survive, but he has to go through all of the difficulty in it. That's why God is doing it. He's a living stone that's being prepared. Now, listen. You and I, we are moms and dads. We are business owners. We maybe are seeking or thinking about public office. Maybe we're pursuing a degree. We want to be a counselor and to do something that helps people. Listen, you need to be prepared. And so God will put you, put us in situations and circumstances that will season our senses so that we're equipped and able to succeed, thrive, and survive in the places that he is setting us up for later on. You don't know where you'll be in 500 years, but God does. And he's allowing things in your life and in mine today to prepare us that when we get there, we are adequately ready. Well, how did David navigate all this? Verse 27, it says, Wherefore David arose and went, he and his men, and he slew of the Philistines 200 men. And David brought their foreskins. He had to use a husky trash bag, not a bucket from Home Depot. And they gave them in full count to the king that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, to wife. And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. Listen, David thrived in spite of everything that Saul threw at him because, number one, he did not allow Saul to have authority over his misery. Remember way back, everybody was praising David, except the one person that had the power to make his life miserable. He was against David. 
David didn't give him that power. Do you realize that someone only has power over you to the degree that you allow them to? And it may be a person that on a practical human level, they have the ability to make your life miserable, but they can only do it if you let them. And David wouldn't do it. He kept his eyes upon God. He was held fast to the promises of God. He remembered what Samuel said and did, pouring oil over his head, and not what Saul could do or not do. And because his eyes were on God, he wasn't worried about what man could do to him. And thus David could thrive even though there was someone that was trying to ruin his life completely. He also did what he knew how to do to the best of his ability. You want 100? I'll give you 200. One thing I can do, I can fight, so I'll fight. And you do what you can do. You be who you are. David kept on being David, even if Saul didn't like David. And here's the result. Saul grew in fear. But watch verse 29. It says that Saul was yet the more afraid of David and became David's enemy continually. And then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass after they went forth that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. Do you see Saul going down and David going up? Saul has become, gone from fearful to more fearful to very afraid. And David has gone from wise to wiser to exceedingly wise and he is growing in wisdom, in influence amongst the people, and also in character. It says that his name was much set by, meaning that he was very dependable. And so here's the amazing thing, is that David comes to the end of this cycle of a praise report, which then became a prayer request, and where he ends at the end of the chapter is with a praise report. He's continuing to grow. But when you have a praise report... It means you're about to have a prayer request, which is what's coming next week when we get into chapter 19 and we see uh, what, what happens next. Listen to me. This process that David is going through right now, maybe you're going through a process like this in some form or fashion. We all are. We're going through this continually. It feels like filth. It feels like God is allowing filth, that God is crushing, that God is against you, that God hates your guts, that, that he's trying to ruin you. That's what it feels like. But you know that it's an expression of absolute perfect love? Because Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this, it says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning that God started something in you on the day that he saved you. He called you with an eternal purpose and he's shaping you for what that is. And he's going to continue to be faithful to prepare you for it. Now we love that, but we don't like the second part. It says until the day of what? Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means until he comes back or you die. Meaning that until he comes back or you die, you and I, we continue to go through this cycle of prayer request, praise report, prayer request, 
praise report, today's prayer request, tomorrow's praise report, which is set in stage for the next prayer request. It's a cycle. It continues. It doesn't feel comfortable always, but it's part of the process of what God is doing in our lives. In Jeremiah chapter 12, and I'm closing, the prophet Jeremiah was complaining about how hard life was in this particular season that he was in. He said, God, it's so hard. I don't know why you're doing this in my life. It hurts. It's, it's miserable. No one's listening to me. They hate me. They want me dead. I'm in prison. Why? And God says this. He says, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, how then can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the swelling of Jordan? God says, look, you think it's hard today? This is easy. You're playing Super Mario Brothers on level one. Like, this is going to get really, really hard, like Tetris. You, know, you have no idea what's coming, you know. I'm preparing you and strengthening you. If they've wearied you in the land of peace during the times of peace you can't hold, you have no idea what's coming. God is faithful who sees beyond where we are right now. And if he's allowed something in your life that maybe seems difficult, feels difficult, looks insane, you think it's the problem, it's probably not. You know what it probably is? you or me. I'm always the problem, it seems, somehow. It happens that way. <laughs> but really, there's many of you that are here tonight, and, and your biggest problem in life right now is probably something that you prayed for at some point. God answered a prayer. That prayer answering brought some complication, some trouble. God, please give me this woman. God, please give me this woman. You prayed for it, <laughs> right? You prayed for your problem, but listen, your problem is your progress, and it's tomorrow's praise report. He's preparing us for eternity until the day of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for, for showing us these amazing things, letting us look into the process of the shaping of a king. And Lord, we sense as we hear it, the things that you're doing in our lives, and it makes us feel loved. Though at times, Lord, we have questions. At times we don't understand, Lord. We choose tonight to look at this with hope. And we want to pray and ask you, Lord, that you would please continue what you're doing in our lives in spite of our kicking and screaming. Thank you, Lord, for the difficult people. Thank you for the difficult circumstances. Thank you for the complications. Thank you for the crises. Thank you, Lord, for the things that make us stay up at night. We want to declare right now with one voice as your church, yet as individuals, that we trust you, that we want you to finish what you've begun, that we don't want to stop in this place where we are right now. And we pray, Lord, that you would win the war against our self-will, that you would keep working the character of Christ in us, that you would keep teaching us the things that we need to know, that you would keep imparting to us the promotions that bring perks, but also problems. And that you'd help us to continue. So Father, help us tonight. We commit our spirits to you. We commit our church to you, our families to you. We declare that we trust you. So would you be our father? Like Jonathan looked at you as his father. Would you shepherd, guide, and lead us? Would you help us? Hear our prayer tonight. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. 
To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.